0: We are continuing our study through the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 11 this evening. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Greg is up and he's passing them around. Getting his exercise a little bit. We're going to be looking at the first 20 verses of Daniel 11. And I'll explain why in just a little bit. We got a, a couple things going on I wanted to make mention of. Uh, Sunday is our Samaritan's Burst, Burst, Samaritan's Purse Shoebox Sunday, and, and so you have to have your shoeboxes in by Sunday, and uh, we're going to have a special Mexican feast potluck after Second Service, so I encourage you to, uh, you know, make a, a nice dish to share There's a little bit of ringing in my um, microphone, I hear it up here, but. Boop! Boop! Hello! Test. Um, uh, so that's Sunday, so we want to make sure we get our shoeboxes in. You can pick up your empty box today so you can have till Sunday to bring it in, so that's exciting. And then I wanted to give you just a brief update about what's happening with the church property. Uh, we've gotten the, the plans we submitted to the city. They've been approved by the city. Everything's been approved for that. And then uh, we now had uh, Jonathan Tassett, he's our architect, used to go to this church years ago, lives in Joplin. We sent it out to about uh, eight um, contractors to uh, get them to bid on the project so we can know how much it's going to cost and, and see who we might want to go with. And we had a pre-bid meeting uh, yesterday afternoon. About six contractors came out and we walked around the property and it was really actually kind of exciting and fun. And they... They all thought it was very, very cool. I mean, to see what God's doing and, and uh, to see the, the work and, and the, the reach we're going to have where it's at, and so it was just. Now you know why we need a new building, uh, but uh, it was really, really exciting. And 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 uh, so they have all the plans, and they ask all the questions, and and uh, they have to get those bids turned in by December fourth. And so they, they're getting all their subcontractors and everything on Laura's birthday, December 4th. They have to turn down on Laura's birthday. I told them it's gotta be on her birthday or, anyway, that'd be a great birthday present if it was low, right? So um we just wanna see, you know, just praying that, you know, it, it's, Greg knows I'm the low ball guy. <laughs> How low can we go? <laughs> How cheap can we do this for? <laughs> but we want top quality. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I I I liked all the contractors I talked to. They were personable, and 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 a couple of them, you know, have had ministry background and, and parents in ministry, and and they thought it was really cool. And so, uh just pray if you would pray that 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 uh, the Lord directs and leads to the right contractor that we would use, the right price, to the right timing, everything on all of that, uh, because we don't. We certainly don't want to go in front of the Lord. I don't want to lag behind the Lord. I want to be right in His timing and His leading and His direction. And, and you know, if it comes back at $3 million, then, hey, the Lord doesn't want us to move, at least not right now. So, hey, I'm good with that. I mean, God has blessed us with the building. Yeah, there's, there's quirks about it, but God has blessed us and we're blessed here, but... You know, just to be able to reach more people with the gospel and 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 to extend our reach, I think would be an exciting thing. And so, um, I just wanted to kind of give you an update on that. It was kind of cool, and and uh, and so, with that, let's pray and we'll get into God's word. Father, we thank you for this night tonight, and we praise you for your word. That what everything we find in it is, Lord, it's given to us for for godliness. And to live a holy life, Lord, as we look into your word, it, it all speaks of you. It's your story, Jesus, about how you've come to this world to redeem us. And you've blessed us. And we thank you for this time, Lord. We pray that you'd bless our children downstairs as they're being taught your word at the same time as we are. Lord, that you'd be glorified in all we do here at, at Calvary. Lord, Do you pray, you know, I want to lift up the new building, Lord, and and what you have in store for us. We want to be led by your spirit, Lord. We recognize it's not by our power, or might, but it's by your Spirit. So lead us, we pray for that. Bless our time tonight, we pray. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've arrived at the final segment of the book of Daniel with chapter 10 telling us that Daniel had been mourning and he had been praying and fasting for three weeks and the angel appeared to him in a vision and said he's come to give him understanding of what would happen to the Jews in the future. And we took the time last time to see what had taken so much time in getting this message to Daniel. In fact, look at verse 13 and 14 of Daniel 10. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet come. And verse 1 of chapter 11 really goes in with chapter 10. Also in the first year of Darius I mean I even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So it's really the conclusion. We've looked at how there's a spiritual battle taking place. Now prayer is the key. But now we're getting the information that is given to us. We begin to look at the message itself. Now there are scholars that suggest that the book of Daniel is divided into two specific uh, subsections, if you would. They say that the first six chapters are the practical part. And for the most part, that's exactly what we see because it's the first six chapters that we read about uh, in the book of Daniel that we read of the Hebrew heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and even Daniel, of course. And we see them living godly in a very ungodly world. To us, we've given practical, insightful information uh, to us to glean from. And so I certainly agree with that from the scholars The second section, scholars call the prophetic part, the visions, the visitations, the dreams, the interpretations, the revelations. And over the last couple of weeks, we have seen Daniel as he seeks God and is found by him. And again, as an important lesson for all of us as we move from the insightful instruction to the inspirational, that at every point, no matter what section it might be, God is saying something to all of us. He's speaking to our hearts. Now, why do I believe that God is saying uh, to us, what What? rather do I believe that God is saying to us in the book of Daniel? That God is faithful. That's the message that I see from, from cover to cover, that God is, is faithful. God is faithful in the past. We've seen that in Daniel's life. Each and every time uh, Daniel and his Hebrew friend decide to trust the Lord and believe by faith that God is able, God shows up in a big, big way and is able to deliver and bless and take care of them. But in the same way, in these last six chapters of Daniel, we see that God is faithful as well because He has forecasted the future with absolute accuracy. Therefore, He has become very reliable to us. So if you're having a hard time this evening trusting how God is going to take care of a situation that you're in, you don't have to. Just look and see how God is taking care of your past so you don't have to worry about your future. And as a result, that builds up your faith in our God so you can trust Him each and every day, no matter what tomorrow brings. Man, look at what you've done in my life before God. Whatever I face, you're going to be there to take care of my future. That builds our faith. And I think that's a lesson we learn from the book of Daniel, the faithfulness of God. Now with that said, before we move on into the chapter, let me give you a warning. This chapter is going to sound an awful lot like a history lesson. (laughs) There's just no way around it. And that's really why I only want to look at the first 20 20 verses. We're going to take a trip back in history and look again at the kingdoms changing hands and wars being fought as God predicted it would happen. And again, the reason God has given that to us with such detail is for us to know that our God is a God that sees the future better than we see our past. No big deal for God. I love Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 11. Where we're told, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. See, the Lord wants to give us heads up about our future, and he's, He's the only one capable of doing that. Now, Jesus said to his disciples back in Matthew 24, verse 25, and talking about the false teachers and the false prophets that would rise up in the last days, he said to his disciples, Behold, I have told you in advance. In other words, I'm giving you heads up. I'm preparing you for the future. That really is one of the main goals of prophecy, is to give us heads up so that we are prepared. In fact, Peter, in talking about how he spent personal time with Jesus in his presence, says to us in 2 Peter 1.19, that we have something just as great. He says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, What you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. See, God has proven His existence in, in many ways and the most undeniable one, in my opinion, is the prophetic word confirmed. The word of God, prophecy going forth, confirmed over and over again. So again, as we go through these verses, it's important for us to remember that they have been written down hundreds of years before they actually happened. Again, proving the faithfulness of God. Now, we're going to take these verses kind of slow, and hopefully I won't lose you, and I won't lose me in, in, in recanting history. You know, I know that, 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 that I think that God shows us from time to time that everything in His Word is not pumpkin pie. You know, I love pumpkin I love pumpkin pie. I can't stand pie crust. I can't stand it. I've never liked pie crust, and you guys may think I'm nuts, but, but but you know, I think the word of God is the same way. There's just this pumpkin pie that is just just awesome, fresh with cream on it. Get a cup of coffee, and it's great. But I, I scrape it out of the pie shell. Why? Because I don't like crust. And 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 to me, listen. The first part of Daniel 11 is pie crust, <laughs> and that's it. I mean. If you like pie crust, maybe it's Brussels sprouts or liver and onions. I, I don't know. But, but you, you can see for yourself. There's something as we go, as we're going along, and this sounds good. This is a little interesting, but maybe midway through the study you're going to go, I wonder if I could go downstairs with the youth and see what they're doing. <laughs> uh, you know, you're making me feel like it's a history class in high school. Well, I hope not. I mean, because there's a big difference between a history book in high school and his story book that we see here. We know that Daniel 11 is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God speaking to us. It's nourishment to our souls. And we may be tempted to skip over, drop down to verse 36, or jump to the Psalms to talk about heaven and the grace of God. But but in order to be well-fed, we need that balanced diet. We need to to take it all in. And, and uh, let me give you one more example of this. Growing up with six kids in my family, my mom would make large meals. And, and uh, you know, she would... You know, to feed us, and, and, and one of the meals that she fed us a lot was Spanish rice with ground beef. And we called it yuck. And, and for a good reason, I mean. <laughs> now, I wasn't bright enough to do what my sister did. She would spread it all out on her plate and look like she ate something, and mom, okay, you're good, that's good enough, she'll take it off. My mom would make me sit at the table till every last bite of yuck was gone. So, I ask, as we look through Daniel 2 through 20, don't feel like you're stuck at the table. Okay. <laughs> you know, just let's look for this nourishment and remember that God is faithful. One more thing before we actually get, move on is if you've been with us throughout the study of Daniel, you're going to recognize some of the same history. We, we've covered it already and, and, and we're going to cover it again. And God does that for good reason. He knows that we need repetition in our life, that we get it down. So that's it. Here we go. Look at verse 2 through 4. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these." Now this is interesting because with with incredible absolute accuracy, with real reliability, the prophet speaks before all of this has happened. And the angel is telling Daniel what's going to happen in human history. He's forecasting the future and and he's saying this is how it's going to go down. And the first thing he says to Daniel is that there's going to be four kings who are going to rise in Persia. The fourth being very rich is going to come up against Greece. Verse two says, and I know. I, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. History saw that happen, just as it's laid out right here. Cyrus was the, the current ruler, and three more kings rose up after him. The first one was uh, Cambyses, the son of Cyrus. He was overthrown by uh, a usurper who took the name of Cambyses' son, uh, Smyrnus, and is called his, in history Pseudo-Smyrnus, or, or, or False Smyrna. The third king was was Darius Histospes, Hestas- and the fourth king would follow. Now, that did not mean that it was the last king of Persia, but that it would be the fourth one from Daniel's day, and a notable one. This fourth king was Xerxes, the great king of Persia, who was extremely rich, and uh, became strong through his riches, and it was his rage that made and, uh, that, that he made against the Greeks that enraged the greeks and Although he had mustered an army of uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, men, he was never totally successful in completely overcoming them. He did manage, however, to, to make Greece hate the Persians and ultimately leading to the destruction of his empire. Now Remember the Greeks were represented in chapter eight as the shaggy male goat who struck the ram which was the Medo-Persian Empire. The goat was described as rushing in with a mighty wrath and, and Daniel 8, verse 6, and he was enraged at him in verse 7. You know, the Greeks finally had enough and so led by a legendary individual, they eventually attacked the Persians and wiped them out. This mighty king, this, this leader of the Greek Empire was none other than Alexander the Great. Verse 3 says, that a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Well, his will, according uh, early on, was to rule the world. That's what he wanted to do, Alexander the Great. And, and in fact, he did rule the world. This is according to his will. He wanted to be superior, wanted to be all-powerful, and he did it. Now, what's interesting to me is that, uh, from God's perspective, he gives Alexander the Great just a single sentence in the Word of God. Now, I'm sure Alexander the Great would have wanted, you know, Books and books written about him is deserving more than just a a, you know maybe a couple of pages of the Word of God. Thinking how great he was, but God says no. From my perspective, Abraham is great man. He gets a whole bunch written about him, many chapters. My perspective, Joshua is great man. He gets a whole book after him. You get the idea. But from God's perspective, He gives Alexander the Great. These I'll give you, chapter eleven, verse three, just a sentence: A mighty king who shall rule with great dominion. That's nothing more. Why is that important? Well, because what should be important to us is the things that matter most to God. And the things that matter most to God are spiritual things, not physical. It really doesn't matter if you can rule the world. If you don't know God, then from His perspective, you're lost. You need to know Jesus. It doesn't matter how much power you have. It doesn't matter how much fame you have. God divides the world into two groups, those that know Him and those that don't. Those that are born again, those that are not. Pretty simple. And that's what we're seeing here. The world from man's perspective and the world from God's perspective. The world from man's perspective. Oh, Alexander the Great, countless books written about him. From God's perspective, uh, he was a king who, who ruled with great dominion. I like that. Now, as great as Alexander the Great thought he was, God knew exactly how his life would be played out. And it's interesting, in verse 4, it, 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 the first half we read, and when he has risen, arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided. Now, we've looked at this before, but another way to translate the first half of verse 4 is, is that while, while it was still growing, you know, it, it, while, while it was still growing. And what's interesting is while Alexander was still growing strong, he was just 33 years old when, you know, he, he eventually died and the kingdom was, was, was broken up. Divided between four kings, four generals, as the scripture says, and we've looked at that in the past. But remember again, none of this happened yet, you know, to this point as it's being recorded here. Also, look now at the end of verse 4. Daniel says, When it comes to proper perspective, when he loses his kingdom, it will not go to his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And it wasn't given to his, 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 uh, his sons, both of whom were, were murdered. It was divided again between the four generals towards the four winds of heaven. It also says that his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. This is the first sin that we have of the Romans coming from the West. But again, all this is happening just, or has had, had happened just as was prophesied. In fact, it happened so exactly that the critics of the Bible get all bent out of shape over this. And they deny it's authenticity, that it was prophecy. They said, no way could this have been written in 538 B.C. It couldn't have been. It had to have been written after these things happened in order to have recorded it with such detail and with such accuracy. And they claim that Daniel was written in 166 B.C. They say it couldn't have been written 400 years before it went down. It just can't be so accurate that it had to be written after the fact. Now That's Interesting. Critics claim that it was written in 166 B.C. Scholars suggest that it was written in 538 B.C. What's worth noting is that in 220 B.C. the Septuagint was written. What's that? Well, it was a translating of the Hebrew into the Greek. And at that time, they had the complete book of Daniel intact. Now, it's kind of strange that critics claim, think about that. the scholars suggest it was written in 538 B.C. Critics claim 166, But the Septuagint was translated in 2.20. So, basically, you're saying the book of Daniel was translated into the Greek 54 years before the critics say it was written. (laughs) Try to figure that one out. How do you do that? You can't. That's why when these critics make some of these claims, you know, we have to do a little digging. You have to say, "Wait, wait, that can't be right. And what happens when you do is you realize that the Word of God will always be the Word of God. The Word of God will always be true. As Paul says in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, will their unbelief make the the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, and every man a liar. If God is who He claims to be, He certainly can say something's going to happen before it's going to happen with with certain accuracy and, and power. He's all that wonderful, all that miraculous. See, tricks we can figure out. Magicians know that they're all just sleight of hand. In fact, some tricks... You know, I've looked into this. They're very expensive to buy. We used to have a guy come out years ago, Dennis Zek. He did Ministry Through mystery. if you've been here for a while. And, and uh, he was a, a, I guess you'd call it, he was an illusionist. And he would do these tricks, and he would, you know. And we had him out like year after year. And about the third year, I'm going, you know, I've seen all your tricks. <laughs> You're not going to surprise me anymore. But he was telling me that you buy these tricks. You have to, to purchase them. And some of these, as elaborate they are, they cost a whole lot of money. And so, you know, that's why, you know, they say that, that you know, magician's not going to give up his trick. Why? Because he spent good money for it. Listen, our father isn't into tricks. <laughs> he knows what's going to happen. He says what's going to happen. He means what he says and says what he means. God's word can be trusted. Well, look at verses 5 and 6. We move on. Also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and those who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. They go, what is that talking about? Well, before the fact, we may not have a clue. But we certainly have advantage after the fact. And what we discover, discover from history, we've got kings. we got kings from the north, kings from the south, kings from the east, and kings from the west. Uh, general Seleucid took over Syria in the north. General Ptolemy took over Egypt in the south. And also there was another general who took over Greece and another who took over Thracia. So Greece was divided into four dominions. But he speaks here, he doesn't speak of, of, of the Grecian or the Thracian kingdoms, but only the Syrian and, and Egyptians. Why? Because those are the ones related to Israel. And, and what is mentioned here is now how the north and the south are now at war. And the reason the Bible mentions that here is, is because Israel is right in the middle, and it affects Israel between Syria and Egypt. And over the course of about 120, 130 years, Poor Israel is caught between the two, and, 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 and this battle's raging back and forth. Jerusalem's captured by both sides at one time or another, and, and ravaged over and over again. And then there's this, there's this general Seleucid who took over in Syria, and General Ptolemy who took over in Egypt. And again, because God always has his eye on Israel, that as the fighting goes on between these two countries, God has his heart towards his people and then we read in verse 6 and at the end of some years now this means some generations have passed now we're moving forward in time and the next generation is now in charge but then this is like the hatfields and the mccoys the, the, the battle's going on and on and on over the years seleucid so of the north in syria had a son anachis the 1st and then he had a son anachis the 2nd and then ptolemy uh, we have Ptolemy II in the south in Egypt who succeeded his father, Ptolemy I. Now, Ptolemy II and second II, were, they were bitter enemies at his, until Atticus began to lose his stronghold. When that happened, Ptolemy does this really wild thing. He decides to actually come to the II, his aide. And they have been these arch enemies for quite some time, but now he decides, man, I'm going to help you out here. So to, Ptolemy begins to support Uh, Anarchist, with the strengthening of Syria, and Anarchist looks back and goes, wow, this is crazy. This is amazing. I can't believe you're really helping us. And Ptolemy says, of course we're going to help you. I mean, I want to see you succeed. And and so Anarchist says, wow, I couldn't have done it without you. And so they decide to make this peace pact. But Anarchist says, how can we do that and really vow to stay together? Ptolemy says, I've got a suggestion here. Why don't we do this? If you take my daughter, Bernice, as a bride, then that would make us family. And I'm not going to go to war with family. You can't go to war with family. Now, don't think that Ptolemy was actually giving him a choice. He, he wanted him to do this no matter what. But Ptolemy was actually saying, do this or die. In other words, it was an offer he couldn't refuse. Now, on the other side, Anakas says, hey, I can't do that. You see, I've got a wife, and, and, and her name is uh, Leo C and, and I'm married. And if I actually marry your daughter... Then my wife is going to be kind of ticked off, okay? So Ptolemy says, okay, I'll tell you what. You either marry Berenice and have this peace pact, you know, or you'll die. So dump your wife. So he says goodbye to Laodicea and his wife and, and marries Ptolemy's daughter, Berenice, and they have a child. Here's a big twist in the plot. Ptolemy second dies. And when Ptolemy dies, because Anarchus was forced into this marriage with Berenice by Ptolemy, Antiochus says, bye-bye, Bernice. See you later, you know. So he dumps Bernice, goes back to his wife, Laodice. We all know the saying, there's nothing worse than a woman scorned. Well, Laodice, comes into the house and everything looks like it's going to be fine. They're in the castle. But she's bothered on the inside that he dumped her in the first place. So what does she do? While he's sleeping, she stabs him in the back. So then she finds Bernice and kills her And she kills the son uh, that they had together. They were supposed to rule and reign. And instead, she takes her own son, uh, Seleucus the second, and places him on the throne. And then she declares, "He is a king." Here's what's amazing: this is all in the Bible. I mean, you think this is a nighttime, you know, soap opera or something on TV, you know, and with murder and lust and and killing and, and and and. But it's the Word of God, written hundreds of years before it happened. And like a well well written soap opera, if there is such a thing, that you know they, they leave you hanging. What's going to happen next? We don't have to worry. We have the script, and it goes on. It gets worse because Berenice has got brothers, and they're pretty ticked off because uh, Leo did see killed their sister. So in verse seven, we see that the brothers, the root, the branch that arises, and decides to go against the north is all because the Ptolemies are angry. Look at verse seven. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So we have Berenice's brother, Ptolemy, whatever number he is, who came to power after his father's death, vowed to avenge his sister's murder invades the northern kingdom of Syria as Laodicea killed, put their son King Seleucus II in subjection, carried off many of the treasures of the north. But as time passes, a few years after the invasion and plundering of the north, uh, Seleucus attempts an revenge attack on the south. Now this happened in 240 BC. Verse 9 says, Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. In other words, I'm going to get even. I'm going to attack you. I'm going to get you. And it didn't work out. I'm just going to go back. However, verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. However, his sons, Seleucus III, the III, were the kings that followed the reign of Seleucus II. The they were more successful in the campaigns of the south. North territory continued to enlarge, uh, enlarging to the south, encompassing all of Israel down to Gaza. Until verse eleven, then we read that the king of the the, the south is now ticked off. <laughs> Look at verse eleven: And the king of the south shall be moved with rage, and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hands of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands. But he will not prevail. So according to the generations, we're up to Ptolemy the IV on the south side. He's the guy who's responding with rage. He takes an army of about 78,000 men to fight Anarchist III, north army, uh, the north army at, at Raphia. The northern army lost more than 10,000 men the year with 217 B.C. The history shows us that Ptolemy didn't pursue any further after such a great victory. He allowed his, his positioning to remain weak, which led to a later uh, defeat. Verse 13, for the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Verse 14, now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. So 16 years later, or 201 B.C., Anarchist III recovered from his defeat, raised another army, a much larger one. This time he's joined by some of the Jews from Palestine, those that violently opposed being dominated by the southern kingdom and thought that Anarchist III would free them from their oppression, and so they 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 joined in the southern kingdom now being ruled by Ptolemy the 5th was pushed out of the Mediterranean port of a uh, seaport of, of of Sidon as well as losing control over the land of Palestine. And although uh the 3rd was victorious the southern kingdom killed many of the Jews that had partnered together with the north. So it's just a mess here. Verse 16 says, "But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, an upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of woman to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be before him. Once Anachis the third had gained power over Palestine, he formed a marriage with an alliance with Ptolemy the fifth, using his daughter Cleopatra the first. Not the same Cleopatra that married Mark Antony whose last meal was a basket of figs that we looked at on Sunday mornings. Now she comes years later down the road. But Anarchus was hoping that once Cleopatra and Ptolemy got together he could use her to come against him and undermine the southern kingdom. But once they got married Cleopatra said I ain't going to obey my husband. It says in verse 17 she shall not stand with him or before him. Then verse 18 and after this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Keep going. the III continued his conquest attacking Asia Minor, the Greek islands, and even the Greek mainland. What Anarchus was not aware of was that the Romans were coming to power. That when Anarchus went north to his frustration trying to conquer these Greek islands, he came into conflict with this new empire, the Romans. Dun dun, 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 I mean, we're talking, you know, the empire, Star Wars type of thing. Well, you know, the Romans didn't let Anarchus do what he wanted to do, and, and these are not your land to conquer, you know, he says. These are not your droids. These are not your lands to conquer. You're not going to get that one. Verse 19, he goes back, "...then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land." but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So the third decides to go back to his own land, but was killed when he was trying to steal the treasures of a Babylonian temple. Finally, verse 20, There shall arise at his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. After Anarchus was killed, uh, uh, his son Seleucus IV became king, and because of his father's defeat to the Romans, he then imposes heavy taxes. He raised taxes. Not only that, but this guy's quest for money took him to Jerusalem's temple treasury. We're told in the apocryphal book of Second Maccabees that this king heard that Jerusalem's temple treasury had all this money, it says there, that was full of untold sums of money so that the amount of the funds could not be reckoned and that it did not belong to the account of the sacrifices but that it was possible for them to fall under the control of the king. Well, Seleucus IV didn't want to uh, be told that twice. He sent his minister of finance, Helodorus, to Jerusalem. But apparently, Helodorus was what had been you know, working on a plan to betray the king. And just a few days after he was sent to Jerusalem, the king was removed from power, but not in anger or in battle, as it says in verse 20. And there's a the whole thing recorded in, in Second Maccabees about how this guy... Uh, Heliodorus saw a vision he went to the temple treasury and he passed out and freaked out and, and ended up not taking the money and, and kind of a history thing. but So that brings us up to, to, to verse 21. Verses really 5 through 20, which just see this, this fascinating part of history that traces the events exactly as it happened, the way before they ever happened. And, and that, that brings us to the second part, verses 21 through 35, which brings up an individual we briefly looked at in times past called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. A man called Antichrist Epiphanes. Wicked, wicked man. Then the third section, verses 36-45, brings up the Antichrist of the New Testament. And that's why I wanted to stop at verse 20, because I didn't want to... You know, we're all wiped out over the history. This stuff, the rest of it, we we have to be clear on, we have to understand what's going on, and we'll look at that next time together. Because there is more history we've, we've, we've looked, you know, we need to look at, and I think we've had, you know, enough... Yuck for one night, but I mean, it's good stuff. This, this is history. This is stuff we have to see, we have to understand. And what we see, what we understand is that man is bent on war. And we see through history one war after another after another and and, and, and really just a short history of war on planet Earth. History is filled with thousands of wars and billions dead. People try to, to put an end to conflict, but they always fail. Why is that? Well, because of James. what James 4, 1 and 2 says says there, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, you do, yet you do not have because you do not ask. One author writes, The poison well is the souls of men, and the heart, selfishness, pride, all personal, national, and worldwide strife. You know, battle after battle. Why? Because because of men's hearts. And that final battle on the planet will be fought there in the Valley of Megiddo called the Battle of Armageddon, the final conflict. Humans will stand in opposition to God. The events described in this last two parts, two chapters rather, of Daniel. And we're going to get to them. But the lesson that we can learn here this evening is that God is in control and that God is faithful. He says what he means. He means what he says. And history has proven it over and over and over again. And God says one day he will confine sin and selfishness in hell forever and God will accomplish exactly what he says he will. There's so only two things on this earth will last forever, people and God's word. And I think after reading this history we should all ask ourselves the question, what am I doing to invest in the eternal? How am I investing my life? How can I be more effective in presenting the gospel? What can I do to be focused on the spiritual things? And not let the things in the world you know, overcome me and, and get focused on those things. Because really all that matters is, is what we do for the Lord. That's it. And to know that He is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank You